0: sometimes after our songs uh, we applaud and we're never applauding the band <laughs> I trust you know that we're applauding the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to whom we just sang because the clap to him for what we what he's done what we just sang about is an act of worship so is reading his word and so I would like to read our passage of scripture just before you're seated that we're going to look at this morning it's taken from Philippians chapter 3 verses 12 uh, down to chapter 4 verse 1 This is God's word. The Bible says, Not that I have already obtained this, that is, future resurrection, nor am I already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have seen in us. For many of whom I have often told you, And tell you now, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is God's word to us. You may be seated. Most of us are probably aware of this. But everyone was made to fulfill a purpose. Uh, by made, I mean that it's actually part of our design. It's not just a fact of our existence. It's actually built into our existence. Uh, we are hardwired, you might say, to, to have and to fulfill a purpose. Uh, that's a very consistent um, thing to say. It's very consistent with the Bible, but you don't even have to be a Christian or, or even an overtly religious person to recognize this. Uh, even in our society in modern America, which is increasingly sort of post-Christian and in general has moved away these last several decades from uh, finding its, its um, guidance for life by opening up the Bible and going to churches and things like that. Uh, a lot of people still do that, but fewer and fewer than used to. And yet still people recognize this need that everyone has for purpose. Even our post-Christian culture tells people to find a purpose Uh, discover one within yourself or choose one and live it out as the key to having a fulfilled life see most people whether they consider themselves religious or not certainly in our modern society recognize that that simple hedonism you know just doing what feels right at the moment and just kind of living for myself or for pleasure at the end of the day like that's just not the stuff of life and most people understand that at some basic level as people, we are wired to be about something bigger than ourselves and to have made a difference that is greater than ourselves. And now as Christians, we know why. We know why. It, it's very consistent with the worldview of Scripture to understand that, that God actually designed us as human beings to be hardwired for purpose. And the main purpose is to glorify Him to enjoy Him forever. That's why the universe exists and we're part of the universe. So God actually put us together in such a way that we're designed to fulfill that purpose. And we ultimately struggle, the Bible tells us, deep within when we're not achieving that purpose. That's what this morning's passage is really all about. This idea of what does it mean as a Christian to reach for a higher purpose and to live for a life in which I'm reaching for a higher purpose, but not just any higher purpose. God's higher purpose. What is that? What does it look like? That's the subject of the passage that we just read. This morning there's uh, three simple observations I want to make in this text that we just read. Um, The first and the second, uh, sorry, the first and the last are a little bit more brief. The second one is really the heart of the passage, and they all amount to living a life that is extending toward God's purpose. That's his call on you, and that's his call on me, if you're a Christian this morning. The first observation is simply that there is um, a a mix-up of past tense and present tense when the Bible talks about salvation, and we saw this several times in the passage that we just read. When the Bible talks about us being saved from our sins, is it talking about something that's happened in the past? Is it talking about something that is currently happening now, or is it talking about something that will ultimately happen at a time yet future? Now when you read the New Testament, the answer is, well, mostly the first one. Most of the time that salvation is discussed, a Christian is saved from his or her sins, it's discussed as something that's already happened in the past. Jesus Christ lived a perfectly righteous life and he died a sinner's death in my place and he paid for my sins. And that's, that's done, that's finished. And if I've put my trust in Christ to forgive uh, my sins and to pay for my sins, then my salvation's already been accomplished. <clears throat> He's already done it. It's past tense. But there are times where the Bible talks about our salvation in the present tense as well, and even in the future tense. And we've already seen that <clears throat> in this passage this morning. And now I'm getting whatever Draith got. <clears throat> no, I'm not. I'm kidding. I'm not. But I am going to grab this little cup of water right here so that you have to listen to me and not the frog in my throat, which is hopefully less unpleasant. If you don't think it is less unpleasant, keep that to yourself. Okay, um, we saw this already three times Um, think of verse 12 where he says um, I press on to make it my own Now, now the it there in context is where we left off last week when you look back at verse 11 he says that by any means possible I might attain to the resurrection from the dead the resurrection that Jesus Christ experienced Paul says Lord willing I will live a life I will die and I will be raised to the dead from the dead I will have a glorious body like his I will be free of sin I will get to go to heaven and he says, so I'm, I'm, by all means possible, that's what I'm seeking to attain. Now, he says, not that I've already attained it, but I press on to make the resurrection and my entrance into heaven my own because Christ Jesus has already made me his own. Do you see the tension there? He says, I'm living a life right now whereby I'm, I'm seeking to make resurrection my own. Now, Taken at face value, that would make it sound like the Apostle Paul is not really sure if he's actually saved yet. Like his salvation isn't finished. But then he immediately says, because Christ Jesus has already made me his own. That's past tense. So it's a present tense reality he's experiencing, but it's also a past tense finished thing. You also see this tension in verse 16. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Hold true, Christian, to what you already have attained. It's already yours, salvation, so hold true to it, meaning you could not hold true to it. There's a present tense reality, but there's also a past tense reality. Hold true to it, and yet you already have it. Lastly, we see this in the last verse we saw, chapter 4, verse 1, where he says, Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Stand firm in this way. Now, we're going to talk about what this way is in just a moment, kind of in the heart of the passage. But just before we get there, here's what I want to point out. He explains to them how to stand firm, and then he just summarizes it with that command. Stand firm in the Lord. Now, we already saw that the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to a church full of Christian people in the first century in the city of Philippi, the Roman city of Philippi. They're already Christians, which in the language of the New Testament means they're already in the Lord, And yet he says, now that you are, stand firm there. You're already there, that's past tense, and yet stand firm, it's present tense. And so what's going on here isn't that there's really any doubt that a Christian should have about his or her... um, you know, insecurity related to salvation. Like, ooh, maybe Jesus will forgive me, maybe he won't, I have to be a good enough person. That's not what's going on here. It's very clear that this salvation is something that's already happened. I'm already in the Lord. I've already attained this glorious future because of Jesus, not because of me. And yet, and yet, even though that's true, it's past tense and it's done, it radically reshapes the present reality that you and I live every day. We might put it this way salvation is a past tense that's an accomplished fact it's done for a christian but it reverberates throughout every facet throughout every okay i put the word hour in the wrong place which is what happens when you're editing powerpoint slides on the fly so sorry about the grammar reverberates I should say reverberates throughout every facet of our present daily lives It's a past tense reality, but it's not just something that happened way back when Jesus was alive. It happened way back when Jesus was alive, and that has reverberations in everything I experience as a Christian right now, present tense ongoing. That's what he's talking about. And then it ultimately redefines my future tense experience, both my destination, heaven rather than hell, and my destiny to be a child of God. Salvation is both a past tense, done reality that reverberates in the present and redefines my future. Now, this morning's passage is really about that middle one. What does it mean that for the Christian, salvation is something that reverberates through the present? How does it do that? What does that mean? What does that look like? And how should I be living differently as a Christian in light of my salvation? That leads us to the second observation, which is really the heart of the passage, First observation is simply that there's both a past, present, and and even future tense reality here. Um, The second observation is that the present reverberation of a Christian salvation revolves around two things, a goal and a prize. That's really the heart of this passage, a goal and a prize. That's what it means to have salvation reverberate through my life. First of all, the goal. He says there's a a goal in mind because Jesus Christ has saved me. This starts to come out very clearly and very colorfully in verse 13 with the language that he uses. He says, brothers, I don't consider that I have yet made it my own. I'm, I'm not perfect. I haven't gotten my Christian life all completely figured out yet. But here's one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind... Which, in context, he's primarily referring to that old works oriented religious thing where, like, I try to keep all the laws and be good enough for God. He's like, I'm done with that. <laughs> and I am now pressing on. And look at the language of verse 13 uh, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. It's very vivid language, very deliberately chosen. It's athletic language, uh, it's distance runner language, it's like, you know, race imagery. There's, there's a goal and, and, and I'm working toward it. There's a finish line up there somewhere and I'm sweating and I'm hurting because I'm running and I'm running up hills and, and every fiber of my being is screaming, stop, this hurts. But I keep going because I'm reaching for that goal. I want to finish that 10k or I want to finish that half marathon or, you know, whatever it is, I'm trying to run. This is a very... Um, Live and vivid illustration for me personally, some of you know I was a distance runner in high school, many of you were as well, maybe ran cross country or track or something like that. Um, The importance of keeping the goal in mind when you're running uh, came home to me, when I saw that language I immediately thought of one of their courses that I raced in in high school, it was from a rival high school and it was up in the hills, not far from where our school was, very, very hilly course, um, twisting and turning through these canyons and ravines, Um, just kind of a brutal course, lots and lots of uphill. And you'd run this, it was like a three-mile course or something, and you'd run uh, about two and a half miles of it, and then you eventually came around this bend, after you had climbed another, yet another really long hill, you came around this bend, and there in front of you, this nice, gentle downslope, about 100 yards away, was the finish line. Glorious sight. Now, here's why I remember this course, because they teased you. You weren't quite done yet. At that point, you'd only run two and a half miles. Now, there was a ridge that went off to your right, and there was a trail on it, and so they walked a quarter mile out onto that ridge and dropped a little orange cone, and said, the first thing you have to do is take a right turn, (laughs) run another quarter mile out there, hit the cone, turn around, and then run back. Now you've done your three miles, and you can go to the finish line. So you're coming around that bend, and you're like, oh, glory, oh, not glory. I've still got another half mile to go, and you'd run, and of course it's uphill, so you're running up this ridge and you're seeing that little cone way out there in the distance and you're like, is this race ever gonna end? But you know, you'd know, you get up there and you'd eventually turn around and now you're headed back down and you could look out across this one little ravine and there was the finish line. It was still a quarter mile away, but it's all downhill now. And you're like, I'm gonna make it. <laughs> if I see another hill again, I'm probably gonna scream, but like, I'm gonna make it. It's, it's worth, it. I keep going because I'm almost there. I can see it. Now, you're running on, you know, dirt, not pavement, so you got to look down, too, so you don't twist your ankle on some dirt clot or something, but you don't just focus here. You're looking up because you can see that finish line coming. That's what he's talking about here. Christians live life in such a way where it's like, I've got one eye on whatever I'm dealing with in the day and another eye, as it were, out on the goal, the finish line, my resurrection and the completion of my salvation. To have salvation reverberate in the presence means that I live life with the goal clearly in mind. Everything I'm doing here and now is being done with reference to and in view of that goal and when God will finally take me home. You know, it's, it's interesting. I think we, we have kind of a, maybe I would call it an intuitive understanding of this, at least, um, especially when things are really hard or, or difficult or tragic, Um, it's pretty common today to hear people, even people who aren't Christian people, say things like, everything happens for a reason. You hear people say that? Pretty common. I choose to believe that, that life isn't just random. I mean, people have a sense, even if they don't identify with a religion or believe in Jesus, many people just have a sense that life isn't as random as we're sometimes told it is. There's gotta be a larger reason or purpose out there. Maybe not sure what it is, but there's gotta be one. And even sometimes as professing Christians, we will modify that a little bit and say something like, I believe God has some purpose in this. This horrible thing, even if I don't know what it is, I got to believe God has a plan and he's in control. And that's actually true. Uh, That is a good thing to say. Although sometimes I wonder if we imply that we don't have any idea what that purpose may be. Now, it's true that often I don't know exactly why God has allowed some difficult, horrible, or tragic thing to happen to me or to somebody else that I know or love or maybe even to a stranger. Like, God, why why would you allow that accident? Why would you allow that person to get cancer? Why would you allow that person's marriage to fall apart or whatever the situation is? And, And it's very true that we often don't get a straight answer to that. I mean, God has this odd idea that he's God and he doesn't have to explain himself all the time, you know. He says, trust me, trust me, I have purposes in all of it. But we don't often know exactly why that's happened to me or to somebody that I know. We don't always get that answer. But you know what, having said that, we do know God's overall purpose in life. He's made that very, very clear. And however all the individual pieces of my life story or somebody else's life story fit into that purpose may not be clear to me right now, but I know what the overall purpose is. His overall purpose is to bring millions of people out of death and into eternal life together with himself. That's his purpose. Every difficult thing we go through is another hill we have to sweat and strain our way up on our journey toward the finish line, which is clearly in view even if we have to take a right turn and do some more running before we get there. We know where the finish line is. And one of the ways that salvation reverberates through our past salvation reverberates through our present is when we come to live every moment, every day, every situation in light of that ultimate goal. But there's more than just a goal. There's not only a goal. There's also a prize. There's also a prize that takes center stage in this passage. He goes on from verse 13 to verse 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus he says there's there's a prize at the end of the school there's a trophy for the winner of the race there's a gold medal for the victor and that's what I'm really striving and straining for he really means by verse 14 there's a prize that comes from the upward call of God in Christ Jesus in fact, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version as I usually do. The uh, NIV, the New International Version, worded this a little bit differently, and I think they get it right here. They said, um, the way they translated that verse is, I press on to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. You see that? There's a prize. God has called me to heaven, and there's a, there's a goal. It's not just a finish line. There's an award. There's something worth striving for. I mean, an athlete trains and strains and pains because he wants to at the end of the day. It's not just the pain, it's the joy of winning. And the the joy of winning and competing outweighs the cost that you have to pay to become the well-trained athlete. This is a picture of the Christian life. That's what the Bible's trying to show us. We're on a mission as Christians to advance the kingdom of Jesus by making him known to those who aren't his followers and making him more beautiful in the eyes of those who are his followers. Maybe in the language of the Bible that would be, we're on a journey to be disciples who make disciples. We help one another follow Jesus better, and we help those around us who don't follow Jesus see the gospel and see the beauty of Christ so that they can become disciples of Christ too. We do this by living a life that announces the greatness of Jesus and the perfection of the salvation that he's accomplished for us. Everything that I do and everything that I say ideally is going to reverberate with the goodness and the beauty of my Savior that people would see him when they experience relationship with me and hear me speak. Now that task culminates when our faith becomes sight. Sight. That's the goal in the finish line. When, when God wipes every tear away from our eyes, when either he returns, Lord willing, or I die and go to be with him. And when we hear those life-giving words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter now into the joy of your master. That joy you've always believed was there. That joy you've been holding on to the hope of someday I'll experience this. Guess what? It's finally payoff time. It's finally payoff time. Oh, what a day. That's the prize for crossing the finish line. He says, that's what I'm reaching for and straining for. That's what's out in front of us. Crossing that finish line means receiving the most beautiful, satisfying, and exhilarating prize the universe has to offer. A place as a blood-bought son and daughter in the very presence of the God who is himself, life for all eternity. Last week, I, I read an excerpt uh, from a letter that uh, an American missionary wrote to his father-in-law, early 19th century missionary, adniram Judson, when he was asking him for his uh, daughter 's hand in marriage. And we focused on the life that the missionary, adniram and his wife Anne, uh, the life that they lived. I want to just go back and read one small part of it and think for a minute about her father. Remember now. This is the early 1800s, and uh, travel was much, much more difficult. It was several months by boat to get to India, which is where they were originally headed. They ended up in Burma and lived there for many, many years uh, until Anne died. Uh, Acting as missionaries, no real hope that they would ever get to come back anytime soon, see their families again. Um, No Skype, no email, no long-distance phone calls. I mean, this was like a major undertaking to go be a missionary in a foreign country that far away. Now, he's asking this dad if dad will bless their wedding so that he can take dad's daughter away and he may never see his girl again, ever in this life. Never probably see any grandchildren that they have. Never get to have them over for Christmas dinners and Easter celebrations and the grandkids' birthdays. There was a lot loaded into this request. Let me read a part of the letter that he wrote to his soon-to-be father-in-law asking him to consent to the, the, the wedding. He said, can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God. Do you see what he's doing with his father-in-law? He's saying, I get that this is a huge ask. I'm, I'm going to be real about that. I'm not going to lie about this. Like, this isn't just your daughter marrying a nice young man. This is like, I'm going to take her away, and you may never see her again. There's a lot of sacrifice for you in this. Are you, sir, willing to put that on the line for a greater purpose? And he throws his father-in-law's attention forward into eternity. Could you do this for Christ himself, and for the sake of people who may come to faith in Christ and have eternal life because she went? Can you see that greater good? Can you imagine that and hope for and yearn for that and live now in light of that calling? He finishes this letter. Can you consent to all of this in the hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory? But now she won't be the same. She will be crowned uh, with the crown of righteousness, and that crown itself will be brightened with the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Savior from heathens saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. What a picture! He fuels his would-be father-in-law's imagination by asking him to imagine what a, a future in which because he was willing to part with his daughter potentially forever, she went to another country. People who never knew Jesus came to know Jesus. They all died. They're all in heaven. And now not only does he get to see her again, but he gets to see all of these people who are praising God even more because of the sacrifice. And he says, isn't that so much better than a few birthdays and Christmas dinners? Can you live this life in light of the next? I I read that quote, and I'm simultaneously struck and convicted by how short-term my own vision often is. And at the same time, I'm incredibly motivated to say, yes, God, I want to live for so much more than just my here and now short-term desires. That's what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. I am straining and reaching for that prize. And you know, at some level, that's a growth process, I think, for every Christian. Um, Very few people are just born into the kingdom of God and instantly think this way all the time. In fact, I'm not sure I've ever met anybody who would say that that was the case. We might say that that, that longing for this eternal prize so much so that we can imagine it, see it, smell it, almost taste it, and we yearn for it even more than nice things that we could have here. That would be fine, but we're happy to give them up in order to get something better. Thinking that way, that's kind of an acquired taste, really. It's kind of an acquired taste. It's a reorienting of the affections and the hopes that takes time and it's a process. Maybe you've had experience acquiring a taste uh, for certain things that are better for you than what you might prefer. Anybody had that experience? I sure have. Actually, I actually having dinner with some friends just last night, and oddly, we talked about, we talked about that very thing. And I said, I'm going to share this illustration, and it's not about you, just so you know that, okay? Um, I've had times where, uh, in my life, I wasn't eating particularly well and didn't much care, and wasn't exercising regularly, and didn't feel a whole lot of motivation. Now, for some of you, that's probably not a real problem, judging by how often I see you, like, running around town or something like that, but I've had times, it's just like, yeah, not a part of my routine, and I'm not really motivated to do much about it either, Um, but then something will happen, where eventually I get kind of tired of, you know, whatever, feeling tired, or tired of feeling lazy, or or often, you know, maybe my wife will say, like, she wants to, you know, change some of her eating habits, so she starts eating healthier. And I'm thinking, well, now healthy food's in the house. Like, what excuse do I have? You know, I should do this too, and so I'm following her lead, or something like that happens. And, like, I'll say, okay, I'm going to decide to, like, you know, donut mat needs to go away for a little while, okay? Like, let's just set donut mat aside and um, eat something, like, better, You know, so like a few years ago, um, Amy and I started making these like green smoothies in our like super blender with like, you know, lettuce and kale and like spinach in them and stuff. And I got to the place where like a couple times a week, that was breakfast. Donut Matt could not fathom that. Okay, that was a very slow, gradual process. (laughs) But I'm like, no, I'm going to do this. Now... And it was fine. I mean, I didn't really mind it. I didn't really love it. Like, it was just, it was in my head. It was an act of will. I'm like, I want to do this. I should do this. I'm going to start running again or whatever. I'm going to start eating better. Um, I'm going to give up that, you know, whatever warm, greasy breakfast thing that I really love and I can actually do this because it's better for me. So I'm not really wanting to, but I'm choosing to. So now I'm kind of doing it, even though I don't really want to, just as an act of will. But you know, the interesting thing is, and some of you have probably experienced this, the more you do that, after a while, like I actually start liking it, you know. It takes time, <laughs> at least in my experience, but eventually I start to actually crave the better for me foods. You know, I'm like throwing a bunch of spinach in this blender and I put the lid on and I look down and there's like a oh, one little leaf of spinach fell out onto the counter, and the thing's already going. So I'm like, oh, well, i will just I'm eating it. I'm sitting there chewing on a raw spinach leaf, going, that's yeah, pretty good. And Donut Matt goes, what? Like what 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 just happened? What did I just do? You know, and suddenly I'm like, actually, I, this tastes really good. I'm sort of craving. I've gotten used to it. I want it. You know. Oh, sure, there's still times where donuts are pretty tasty, actually, <laughs> and I'll eat them, and there's more than enough time that I wake up early, and I'm like, ah, I would so rather sleep in than go to the gym. I mean, the battles are already there, but, you, you know, I have experienced acquiring a taste for things that are healthier for me, so what started as like, I don't want to do it, and I don't choose to do it, moved into like, I choose to do it, even though I don't want to do it, but if I stay at it, eventually, it's like, I choose to do it, and I kind of want to do it, and that's a very gradual transformation. I think that's how we experience as Christians, yearning for eternal home as well sometimes it's like man I I find that hard to picture you know I don't even want to do that or maybe maybe I read a passage like this and I say okay you're right I want to do that I want to live that way and so I start trying to think more about who Christ is and I start trying to live more uh, less for myself now and more for God's greater purposes and sometimes it's not really fun and it's a sacrifice but I keep doing it but eventually I'm like you know what God's word is really beautiful And you know what? Sometimes when you take risks to talk to somebody about Jesus, they're actually willing to talk about Jesus. And I just had a spiritual conversation with a friend that was awesome. And it starts to get addictive. It's like, wait a minute, this is cool. (laughs) Wait a minute, I could actually have less coffee or downgrade my cell plan. I know I'm getting a little sacrilegious here, but you know, like I could make lifestyle choices and give more money so that some kid in Haiti or South Sudan can actually have an education or basic food. And that's like actually fun. I start to want to do that kind of stuff. Whereas the old me wasn't even thinking about it. It's an acquired taste. And I don't know where you're at with that, but maybe like me, you feel the pull of modern American middle-class success. I mean, we all do, really, at one level or another. It can look pretty different from one person to the next, but I think we all feel it. Um, get good grades, be one of the successful students in school, Uh, go to college, get a job, get a job with long-term career potential. Maybe for you it's the drive to get married, have kids, raise a family, put in your 25, 30, 35, whatever years in your industry to finally hit that point of retirement where you can cash in and finally, for once in your life, live the life you really want, with boundless leisure time and nothing to do, right, retired people? You never have anything to do? I think everybody who's ever retired always says, oh, I'm more busy now than I was when I was working. And all of us working stiffs are like, no, you're not. Stop it. And they're like, yes, we are. You know, it's like, but there's this goal, right? What, what goal, what, what motivates me when I get up out of bed in the morning as a Christian? What am I reaching for? What am I striving for? By the way, of course, there's nothing inherently wrong with any of the things I just mentioned. Getting good grades, going to school, having a career, Saving for retirement, those are all good things. They're very good tools for getting along in this life. They make really good tools to get along in life. They make really bad life ambitions because they'll always let us down. They'll always let us down. We were made for more. The Bible's telling us there's a goal and there's a prize. Paul says, that's what I strive for. And just before we move to the final point, let me just quickly mention that for some of us, Maybe the answer to that question is a little bit different. Maybe it's like, you know what? Things are so hard in my life right now. I'm just trying to survive. You ask me what gets me up out of the bed in the morning. Like right now, I'm not even sure. I'm just, I'm surviving. I'm not reaching for even lesser temporary goals, much less greater eternal ones. I'm just trying to get through the day. And this all this talk of, of ambition and striving. Sometimes, especially when we're in a really, really hard period of time, can just feel like, man, I'm just trying to get by. And it could be easy to hear uh, a passage of Scripture like this and just feel like, oh, there's one more way. My life isn't measuring up to God and what He's calling me to. And I actually hope that when we read this, um, we don't hear as much guilt and shame as we hear inspiration and encouragement because I really think that's what the Bible is going for here. It's an exhortation, it's an encouragement to say, friends, we all get sucked into that like living for here and now stuff. It takes a thousand different forms, but we all know what that's like. But as Christian people, the Bible's trying to lift our eyes up and say there's so much more. There's a goal and there is a prize. Don't waste too much time being frustrated that you're not living that out right now. Just get excited about it and start living. In fact, there's great hope in this passage. For those who are feeling like, man, I am just trying to survive for whatever reasons. And if that's you, I hope you hear that hope. Because this passage says that no matter how steep the hill is that I'm on, no matter how painful it is to climb, there is a finish line at the end with a prize that is worth every ounce of pain and every drop of sweat. There's great hope here. So be motivated. The Apostle Paul calls every Christian to this. In verse fifteen. He says, Let those of us who are mature think this way. Now those of us is again, he's talking to his his audience, a whole church full of people like this one. They were in the first century, we're in the twenty first, but the time is the only difference. He says to a whole group of Christians, let all of us who are mature, we're growing Christians, like this is, this is how we think. If you are a mature Christian, this is how you think. And if you think this way, you're a mature Christian. This is part of what it means to be a mature Christian, is developing this mindset where I'm living this life in light of the goal and the prize. And that becomes more and more an experiential reality for me. This is not just something that, that the super Christians do. This is not just something for um, the missionaries, you know, This is not just something for pastors. This is something that all Christians do together. I think my thing may have gone. If you can advance that slide for me, that'd be great. My clicker's not helping me out very much here. (laughs) This is something that all Christians are called to do. This isn't just like the way that, thank you, this isn't just the way that, um, back one more. There it is, right on, there we go. We'll do the rest of this audibly. There's only one more slide left. This isn't just the way that, um, like, missionaries, you know, who, who leave the country and, and go live in a foreign country where, where maybe there's a lot less comfort and maybe a lot less security, and we're like, wow, they voluntarily gave that up to go serve Jesus, and that's pretty amazing. And, like, they're clearly making investments, you know, giving up short-term things for long-term eternal purpose, and that's great for them, but, like, I'm not a missionary. So maybe Paul's talking about those kind of people. Actually, he's talking about all of us. He says, let all of us who are mature think this way. He's like, this is what I do as the Apostle Paul when I run around and and start churches all over the first century, but most Christians weren't doing that. They were living in their communities and raising their families and working their jobs, and he says, you too live this way. This is how mature Christian school teachers think. It isn't just about showing up and dealing with cranky kids and cranky parents and and discipline problems and getting through the day. There's a goal and a prize, and somehow today God has a plan for you in reaching that for his glory. This is how mature Christian stay-at-home moms think. It isn't just endless piles of laundry and dirty dishes and unvacuumed carpets, although it's actually probably all of that. <laughs> but there's also a goal and a prize, and every moment of this matters in light of eternity. It's an opportunity. This is how mature Christian police officers think. It isn't just another patrol, another pile of reports, another bad guy to calm down or intervene with and arrest, another ticket to write. There's a goal and there is a prize. And God has given you opportunities to achieve that every single day. It's how mature business executives think. It's how mature Christian software engineers think. It's not just another line of code to debug or another project deadline to hit. There is a goal and there is a prize And how can I live this life and this day in light of that? It's how mature Christian doctors and nurses think. It's not just another list of sick people, some of whom may be cranky and some of whom may be appreciative. It's how mature Christian parents and spouses think. It's not just another need that the kids have or another issue I have to deal with with my husband. There's a goal and there's a prize. You see, this is how he says, let us all think this way. In all of these facets of life, Every day is an opportunity to reach for the real eternal goal, yearning for the prize that comes with crossing that finish line. So we see that salvation is a past tense reality that reverberates in the present. And the second, the main point was how does it do so? Primarily by living today in light of the goal and the prize. That's what this passage lays out for us. Now, as he concludes, we've got just one more observation to make because we have just left a bunch of questions on the table, didn't we? It's one thing to say, I need to live today in light of that goal and that prize. It's another thing to say, what does that mean? What does that mean for me today if I'm a school teacher, a software engineer, a stay-home mom, stay-at-home mom, a police officer? What, what does that look like? And that would have been true in the first century too, the original readers of this letter. They could have said, what does that mean, Paul, if I'm a coppersmith, if I'm a local government official if I'm a farmer if I'm married if I'm single like it sounds great but what does that mean and he could have gone on for several more chapters saying so now if you're in this category of life think about like these five things and if you're in this category of life think about these 12 things and like here's how it might look he could have done that and the book of Philippians would have been a lot longer than it is but here's what he does instead verse 17 having laid that vision of living this life in light of the goal and the prize he says brothers join in imitating me and then he says keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us he says the biggest way we can start to answer that question is to actually watch one another watch one another there's no way any one person, no pastor, no anybody else could say, you know, for school teachers, here's all of what that means. Like, I've got that all figured out. I don't. <laughs> for spouses, here's what that means. Like, I know everything about what it means to be the perfect godly husband. I don't. I'm still working on it. Nobody has the list, but you know what? This is the beauty of the body of Christ together. And so I love what the Bible does here. It turns our eyes as Christians, having lifted them up to heaven, and now puts them down onto one another. He says, keep your eyes literally fixed on people who live this way. Watch them. Hang out with them. Ask them questions. Learn from them. See how they're thinking. How do they live out their Christian life in their classroom, office, home, wherever it may be? One of the best ways to orient my life to this glorious eternal goal in terms of my daily experienced reality is simply to be in community with other Christians when we're living this out together. And we're talking with one another about where we're succeeding and where we're failing and how we are striving together to keep the goal and the prize in mind even as we deal with this relentless list of things that are coming at us in any given day. He does point out in the next couple of verses that not everyone who calls themselves a Christian is necessarily a good role model for this. There's a little bit of discernment involved here. Um, verses 18 and 19, he says, there's a lot of people out there in churches professing to be Christians, but they're teaching you to focus on the wrong stuff, either by their example or by their actual words. And verse 19 gives us a couple of things to look out for when he describes them in very general terms. He says, their end is destruction, their God is their belly. But By the way, that is the most epic phrase in the entire New Testament, right there. I think I've said that before, but I just, there it is, Philippians 3 and 19. I love that. Their God is their belly, <laughs> It's describing people who, like, everything that I do, what really controls me is what I want, you know? It's, it's what I yearn for. Whatever I want ultimately is what I pursue. That's the God I obey. I obey my thirst. Oh, I just got a soda pop company in trouble. No. Um, if, if I yearn for something, I go for it. That's what I'm really stretching and reaching for. I'm living for myself. I'm living for my impulses. So when you see people doing that, those aren't the people whose example you want to follow, And then after that, it also says their minds are set on earthly things. They're focused more on here and now. How can I build the best life for myself that I can build? Even as a Christian, their whole focus is kind of on how can I have the best life right now? He says you want to find people. Those are people you don't like judge them. You don't look down on them. You don't feel superior to them. But you probably don't want to follow them as your role model. You want to go out of your way to look for people who are yearning for the greater glories of Christ, not just what they feel like they want right now, and who are actually thinking about the goal and the prize, not just what I can have right now. You find those people, man, lock your eyes on them and follow them. By the way, there are usually more people in any church. Ours is, I think, no exception. There are far more people who are interested in following role models than there are people who are interested in being role models. And there's probably a lot of reasons for that. Some of it's probably well placed humility. None of us have it figured out. But fortunately, you don't have to be perfect to be a role modeled. Otherwise, there would be no role models in the world today. <laughs> Some of it, too, maybe comes from kind of a, a cultural sense that we have in, in American culture that says, you know, you shouldn't um, puff yourself up too much. You know, like if you put yourself out there like, I've got something to teach you, then that comes off as like arrogant. We're like, dude, get over yourself. You know, we don't want to be, and we don't want to be that guy, you know. So a lot of times in churches, we can feel like, oh, I I don't have anything to offer anybody. I'm happy to learn from somebody else, but, you know, nobody could ever learn from me. But it's not true. It's not true. If you understand and have responded to the gospel, if you've lived one day of your life following Jesus, then you know something about what it means to follow Jesus. You can talk about things you failed, and you can talk about things you've succeeded, and you can give God the glory. But this is a call for us to live out loud. You see, we don't have to have it all together to be a role model for somebody else. Jesus calls us to pour ourselves into others and let them pour ourselves into us. That's that's biblical community in a church. To be honest about our successes, God gets the glory. To be honest about our forgiven failures, God, again, gets the glory. But in all of that, we learn from one another because it's not about us. It's not about what I'm making of myself. I've got nothing to bring to the table, but I'm happy to let people know what's going on in my life. See how I do my marriage. Not because it's perfect, but maybe there's something you can get from it. By the way, then tell me how you do your marriage. What can I get from that? See how I do my parenting. See how I do my school teaching. See how I do my studenting. See how I do my stay-at-home momming. You see how this works? We can learn from each other. So I'd like to end with the question I think this passage poses. Um, Who are your role models and your network of friends here in your local church family are there people you identify where you're like i mean they're not perfect but i really think this person is striving for christ and his best i want to be around him or her and learn from them and are there other people that you're letting into your own process of saying i do not have this all together but like this is what i've learned about how to follow christ let's talk honestly about our successes and failures together It's a call for us to put ourselves in relationship and in community, to live out loud with one another, together reaching for the goal and yearning for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the truths of your word and for the great hope that we have that there is a goal and a prize. And God, that raises so many dozens of questions in my mind. <clears throat> over what that's supposed to look like for me today, for my family today. And sometimes those answers, those questions are pretty easy and obvious to answer. Other times they're maybe more elusive. But I thank you for the church family that you've given us. People to do life with, to learn from and learn together with. What does it mean to stretch for the prize and to live this life in light of the next? And Father God, I pray for myself first and foremost. I pray for the elders and pastors and other leaders of our church here. I pray for our members and every Christian who calls this their church home. God, would you extend us? Would you stretch us that we might see the goal and the prize more clearly tomorrow than we do today? More clearly today than we did yesterday? and learn to go through the process of not only choosing to reach for it, but loving reaching for it, whatever that may mean for us. Make each step clear to us, and give us the heart to step out in faith and take some risks so that we can begin to see what it's like to live a life in light of eternity. God, make us an eternity-focused people, that we might delight to give and to love and to extend ourselves in service and in proclaiming the gospel in both word and deed, that others around us may come to eternal life. Only you can do this in my heart. Only you can do this in our hearts. And so we pray that you would and receive the praise of a grateful people now in Christ's name, amen.